about 320 of the artists walked out, picketed, went out on strike. And that strike lasted for nine weeks. And walking around outside in, you know, nine weeks of Los Angeles summer heat is not an easy thing. Among those turning out to support the strike by Hollywood writers, now in its 10th week, have been members of the Animation Guild, IATSE Local 839. Back in March of this year, the animators staged a solidarity walk around Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, with dozens of the studio's animation production workers protesting Disney's refusal to voluntarily recognize its unionization efforts. Those who know their Hollywood labor history will have recognized the echoes of another Hollywood strike, the 1941 walkout by hundreds of animators at Walt Disney Studios. On today's show, animation historian Jake Friedman joins us to discuss his book, The Disney Revolt, which came out last year. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1935. That was the day transit workers in the Bronx walked off the job in what is referred to as the squeegee strike. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Jake Friedman worked for 10 years as an animation artist on television shows and features, and now works as a mental health specialist, teaching the occasional history of animation course at NYU or FIT. His 2022 book is The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. Maybe we should start out with, can you give like a thumbnail of the strike? Sure. Okay. So picture the golden age. Picture all those wonderful shorts of the 1930s, the silly symphonies. Picture Snow White. And then you have Pinocchio and Fantasia. Disney is at the top of the game by miles ahead of its next competitors. And then, as far as the public saw from the outside, about 320 of the artists walked out, picketed, went out on strike. Um, and that strike lasted for nine weeks. And walking around outside in nine weeks of Los Angeles summer heat is not an easy thing. And in the end, uh, they won out. They wanted a union and they succeeded in getting the the union inside the Disney Studios after nine weeks. The animators, the animation artists overall, which included animators and assistants and inkers and painters and in-betweeners, these folks were the last crafts in Hollywood to not have a union at all. You know, we all know the Screen Actors Guild and then the Screen Writers Guild and then uh, camera operators and projectionists and... Uh, <clears throat> background painters and office workers, all of these Hollywood folks, every single one had at least one, but often two or three unions vying to represent them. And the animation artists were the very last. And then once an animation union was formed, every other studio brought it in. MGM, who's doing Tom and Jerry, Warner Brothers, which is doing, you know, Bugs Bunny. And then Disney is the last holdout. So Disney is the last studio to have the last craft of ununionized workers. And then they won out. And when that strike won, Hollywood basically became a wall-to-wall -wall union town. So that's the thumbnail version. Okay, if you would, because I think people, especially these, don't realize the kind of work these guys were doing. 
the cells, the inking. And it's important not only from a technical perspective, but in, from a worker perspective, because I think ultimately that winds up being a lot of the crux around the conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, animation. It's weird when we talk about industry, right? We talk about like the automotive industry and the strikes there. Um, well, people don't need cars, right? But people are buying cars. We talk about like uh, textiles. Well, people don't need dresses, but people are buying dresses. Um, so animation, people don't need to buy movie tickets, but people are buying movie tickets. And so the animation industry kind of came up here in the United States uh, during the second decade of the 20th century when it was discovered that if you have a bunch of artists kind of formed in a, in, in, in a warehouse type of space, similar to any sort of um, industrial complex and use the same sort of format as you would in a like dressmaking factory, then you can have an assembly line process that speeds everything up. And so the assembly line process of animation adopted from every other industry kind of like made animation into a product that would be sold to movie theaters. So it starts with, well, the good one. <laughs> Originally, there was no real story team. Uh, Walt Disney devised to have a group of writers to to create what the story would look like. But at when Walt was starting, not all of them had writers, but he believed that story was key. So the writers have their storyboard, their script, their visual script that reads kind of like a comic book. That storyboard um, gets timed to make sure that all the movements are timed. Each scene from that storyboard and the timing notes is given to layout artists, which kind of like draw, I guess what you can call like setting the stage, drawings that set the stage for what the background is and where the characters are moving from here to there. And then that's taken to the supervising animator for that scene. And the animator draws the main poses. And then that's passed down to the in-betweeners who draw the drawings in between the main poses. And you need if um, between 12 and 24 drawings for every second. And these are hand, I mean, people these days would think, oh, you just do this in a computer. These are the, every one of these drawings. Hand drawn, hand, hand drawn. drawn, hand drawn. Pencil on paper, graphite on paper. And then once you have your stack of drawings, you pass it to a, an inker who traces each drawing on a piece of celluloid, a sheet of celluloid, clear celluloid with, with ink. And then that's passed to a painter who paints on the other side of the same sheet of celluloid, kind of like coloring in the lines. Uh, in between each of the lines, they paint them uh, different colors. Actually, Disney had a paint lab and chemists, like genuine chemists and female chemists coming up with new colors that they needed for their cartoons. So once it's painted, it's passed over to the camera operator. And then it's it's shot one cell at a time under the camera lens. So, um, cell over, is, is, is a drawing, right? Each cell is a drawing. Is that is that celluloid? Right. A right. cell is a is a celluloid sheet that has the inked lines on one side and the painted swaths between the lines on the other side. So it's a finished piece of art. If you see, uh, like what where collectors buy animation cells, that's 
that's the thing that goes under the camera. And meanwhile, while all this is happening, there's someone over there who's painting backgrounds. And some backgrounds are small. And when a character needs to walk left to right, the backgrounds are long, right? So the background goes under the camera. The cell goes on top of the background. The camera's pointing straight down. You close a little lid, like a transparent lid to flatten the cell. Click, that's one frame. Lift up the lid, take out the cell, move the background down one, put a new cell on, close the lid, click, there's another frame. Lift the lid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is done 24 frames for every second of the animation. And, and most of these shorts are between like six and seven minutes long. Walt Disney even himself called it his plant, the way you would call it like an automotive plant, because it, it was structured very similarly. Um, every animation studio in Hollywood was. We have rows of these desks, and it's just an assembly line process of moving one thing to the next. As you talked about earlier, all the other crafts had organized, all the other animators had organized. As I recall, I think Disney paid better, I think, right? It's Walt Disney paid his star animators extremely well, but it was the folks at the bottom that seemed to fly under his radar. And so those folks were really struggling. And when they saw in the trade paper, like Variety, that MGM inkers and painters and in-betweeners were earning so much more thanks to the union representing them, they were like, well, maybe we should do this too. Now, the reason why the union came is a little bit more complicated than that. And there's a lot more drama involved, but that, that was one big difference that they noticed. I mean, it's not a simple story. That's why I wanted to research this and go into depth because in every other book about this, it really glosses over those entire nine months. And I wanted to figure out how it got from people working together, people wanting to be Basically, everyone's aligned. They want the same thing. They want a happy workspace and they want to make good work. And in the end, it was just bitterness after those nine weeks. How is it that they wind up walking out for so long? I mean, this is the early days of unionism where you have all these different unions trying to represent each craft. And one of them was run by a guy named Willie Byoff. Who oh, was yeah. a Capone gangster, right? You have a Capone gangster who looked like a Capone gangster. Like if you want to pull someone out of central casting with his fedora and a scar on his cheek, like Willie Byoff is that guy. And he started out as a racketeer in Chicago. A racketeer being that he would, uh, he had signed all these projectionists under him and then went to uh, the theater owner and said, I will take your projectionist out on strike if you don't give me some money. And so, and so they gave him some money. And then the Acapone people got a whiff of this and said, we can make a whole lot more. And uh, if you go in, in business with us, you'll keep a percentage and we'll keep a percentage and we can grow this and grow your influence and make you so you can do this throughout Hollywood, not just the theaters in Chicago. And so it came down to Hollywood and he said, and uh, I'm here. I am everybody. Let's sign up for some unions. And he already had a reputation behind him, but no one was able to pin him on anything. He was just too slick. And when Art Babbitt, who's this animator, top, top animator at Disney, top animator and innovator. I mean, he was considered the father of goofy. He had brought in the art school. Uh, he was the guy who thought of, 
using live action reference for animation. He was the guy who created a character analysis of the cartoon characters, bringing in like method acting to the characters and unlocking the secret to personality. Like he was so important to the Disney studio, not to mention being a supervising animator for all of these films, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Snow White. Well, Art Babbitt is saying, I don't want Willie Bioff coming in trying to sign up anyone at Disney. I don't want him to infiltrate our walls at all. And so this is 1938. He goes to uh, Roy Disney. Remember, Roy is the co-owner. Walt and Roy are both equal co-owners of the company. He goes to Roy, and Roy points Art Babbitt to the vice president named Gunther Lessing. And Gunther Lessing is a very important player in the story of the strike, although his name is not very common to people uh, who are even fans of Disney history. But it's this vice president who helps Babbitt form like a social organization to get people aligned together, to get the animation artists cohesive together across the company. Remember, we're talking about like 1,500 artists in, during the time of 1938 in, into Pinocchio, um, give or take a few hundred. <laughs> take, actually. So Art Babbitt forms this whole group, and before well, Gunther Lessing knows it, this group becomes a union. And um, over the course of a few months, because bureaucracy, Art Babbitt asks uh, Gunther Lessing for union recognition. And Lessing says, uh, no. First, first, we need this from you. First, we need that from you. First, we need this from you. First, we need that from you. And over the next like year and a half, Babbitt just gets more and more exhausted seeing that he's been given the runaround and that Gunther Lessing never really believed in having any sort of representation or any particular rights for these animators beyond just blocking out Willie Bioff. That when they came to him to ask for just the same basic things that other groups were asking their employers for, Gunther Lessing said, uh, uh, no. And so that really upset Art Babbitt. And that's when his, his fury kind of took over. And so it, at, at this point, by like 1940, there's another independent animation union forming. A clean union has nothing to do with Al Capone. And that's the union that signs up the animators at MGM. And Babbitt joins that union. Let's talk about the strike. They get very creative and it gets very personal. The strikers knew that to, to really stick it to Walt, he, he needed to be hit in his public image. So they covered their picket signs with Disney characters, angry, frustrated Disney characters, uh, Jiminy Cricket saying, it ain't Cricket the pass a picket. Mickey Mouse saying, um, are you a man or a mouse? My favorite is Pinocchio saying, there are no strings on me. <laughs> yeah. So it was, and lots of unflattering caricatures of Walt Disney and Gunther Lessing, the vice president, very unflattering. Actually, there was a, there was an effigy, like a, like a stuffed, a giant stuffed doll. It made in the image of Gunther Lessing. And 
the strikers just carry him around and um uh put him on a on a french revolution style guillotine and parade him around dressed as uh masked executioners and um those artists by the way the artists who if anyone watches the the home movies of the strike and see these really big floats like the guillotine and the costumes all of those folks are the warner brothers artists they were given some permission by their boss Leon Schlesinger to use <laughs> materials from the office and make incredible floats that would help the Disney artists. So those big extravagant displays are all the Warner Brothers folks joining in on the strike. Now, wasn't there, uh, uh, maybe misremembering, but what did they go to the, what was it, the Academy Award? There was some, there's, you described beautifully this, there was this one particular big sort of showdown um that was pretty dramatic yeah well do you do you mean the black tie picket is that the one yes yes the black tie picket right okay i'd never heard of that (laughs) um so the reluctant dragon premiered in california five weeks in uh into the strike and so the night of its premiere these disney artists men and women pull up chauffeured up to the curb in their black ties and evening gowns and they open the back door the chauffeur opens their door and out of the back door they pull picket signs and instead of going into the theater for this premiere they just picket in their evening wear around the reluctant dragons theater down in california so uh that happened they probably didn't understand why this movie was so important for the Disney company. And it was important because uh, the war in Europe had cut off like half of the company's revenue. And so they were really trying to get a very cheaply made but successful movie done to bring in some much needed income. And um, the, the artists, the animators who were on strike and who were trying to stop people from going in to see this movie did not understand the extent of how the war was affecting the Disney studio. All they saw was this very extravagant studio that they were in now in Burbank when they had just worked in this hodgepodge of buildings on Hyperion Avenue in Los Angeles just like a couple of years before. They were like, we're in this big, shiny, brand new studio with brand new buildings, with custom made furniture, professionally designed. And you're telling me you have no money? Impossible. I don't believe you. You are, you are pulling my leg. That's the oldest trick in the book. We're going to pick it every project that you're doing. And so those were the two sides of that story. Talk a little bit about um, how the strike was won. Sure. Um, so the, the strike was won because um, the U.S. government had at the time the Good Neighbor Program to help spread goodwill to other countries in the lower half of North America and Central America and South America, basically to try and get people to not become Nazis. So other celebrities are going down there, Bing Crosby, folks like that. The government sent Walt Disney and they said, you can make some movies there on our dime. 
And Walt said, great. And then they were like, oh, but you got to resolve this strike. <laughs> we can't send you down without this resolved. It had been nine months or nine weeks at that point. So uh, by the end of July, 1941, Roy said, I got this, Walt. I'll take care of it. Walt gets on his trip down to Argentina. Um, someone from arbitration from Washington, D.C. comes down. And uh, Roy signed with, with the arbitrator and brings in the union, signs for the union, and um, it's a success. When Walt comes back, he's kind of disheartened because the, the energy has changed. And the artists who come in would agree that the energy has changed because due to the prolonged bitterness of these nine weeks of the strike, like they really uh, didn't have an amicable reunion. On my website, uh, thedisneyrevolt.com, I have uh, a list of all the strikers and links to things that will give readers like an idea of what happened to them after. I guess the last question is, is that I can get you to reflect a little bit on, you know, I think we tend to want in, in our history, very clearly good guys and very clearly bad guys. And mm -hmm. after reading your book, as usual in history, you know, it's not so clear. I grew up loving Disney. I grew up going to the, the parks, at least Walt Disney World. I grew up watching the cartoons on videotape and on cable back when no one else had cable. And I grew up knowing that my parents were part of the teachers union. They were both teachers. And I grew up knowing that my parents had gone on strike in Philadelphia in 1973. And in 1972-73, my mom was arrested, my dad was arrested, and my, my grandmother, my mom's mom, were arrested for striking because it was illegal for public school workers to go on strike. So all of them voluntarily got picked up by the paddy wagon and got thrown into the big house. They all, I thought that's so, so badass. So I grew up understanding that a union is something you have to fight for. Um, and it wasn't something that we really talk around the table a lot, but it was just something normal, like, like a salary. You earn a salary at work and if you have a union, you support your union at work. Um, so growing up just casually pro-union and adamantly pro-Disney, I wanted to tell this story. And I didn't, like, the story kind of came to me. My animation history professor, John Culhane, told me that I was going to write this book back when <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a question. He told me this when I was um, visiting my alma mater, NYU Film School, a couple of years after graduating. And John Culhane was an animation historian himself. He had written some of my favorite books on animation history, like The Making of Aladdin, for instance, that like really turned me on to the behind the scenes stuff. Um, so I knew I wanted to make this, this book do justice for Walt and for Art Babbitt, the labor leader, because both of them had the best intentions. There is no good guy in this picture or bad guy, everyone is fighting for what they believe in. And for a while, that quality united them both in their belief for 
better art in animation and for a, a global respect for the medium itself, which they were able to earn. The world began to see animation as a bona fide art form while these two artists were collaborating, Art Babbitt and Walt Disney. I mean, you go from Three Little Pigs in 1933 to, um, to Fantasia in 1940. That's, that's just mind blowing. But Babbitt was there for Three Little Pigs, working on that. He was working on Fantasia, 1940, working on Dumbo, working on um, every, every significant uh, goofy cartoon that was, that was creating his character and making Goofy come to life and changing the inside of the studio. So um, I think both of these folks needed to be remembered. There's also, you know, unfortunately, people think it's kind of trendy to knock Walt Disney, maybe because of the public persona being so positive and they want to throw, um, I don't know, bad press at him. And I just wanted, wanted to just like show the human side of him and, and, and the reasons why he made the decisions he chose and um, how the people around him kind of egged him on to prolong this strike unnecessarily. Well, Jake Friedman, it's, it's a wonderful book. And uh, I think you've re- done a, a really superlative job of, of telling that story in, in a way that is, is both dramatic, but incredibly uh, well-researched. So I really uh, appreciate it. And I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you, to you more about it. I appreciate your um, time. Thank you. If your listeners want uh, to, to order the book with a discount, mm-hmm. they can go to the publisher's website, chicagoreviewpress.com, find the Disney Revolt there, and type in the discount code DISNEY25 for a 25% off discount. <laughs> is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1935. That was the day transit workers in the Bronx walked off the job in what is referred to as the squeegee strike. These were the days when New York City's public transit was barely organized. Two of the three transit companies in New York City were privately owned with entrenched company unions. Up to this point, transit bosses had successfully crushed every previous strike. Now, six car cleaners at the Jerome Avenue barn had just been fired for refusing management's imposed speed up. 
Supervisors had replaced their 10-inch squeegees with those that measured 14 inches. They were expected to clean more in a shorter period of time. According to historian Joshua Freeman, author of In Transit, when word spread that the six cleaners had been fired, others downed their tools in protest. They demanded, unsuccessfully, to meet with the shop foreman. After several hours of waiting, they discovered that management had removed their time cards. That's when the two-day walkout began. As many as 70 workers stormed off the job. Pickets went up outside the barn and at the Innerborough Rapid Transit headquarters. The regional NLRB office quickly mediated a settlement that forced the IRT to reinstate the discharged workers and strikers and to answer their grievances. Freeman notes this first strike, though small in scale and brief, was significant. The victory of the squeegee strike immediately built the TWU's authority citywide. It quickly brought several hundred new members into the union. The new dues-paying members provided a financial base for full-time organizers needed to organize New York City's transit. The union would grow rapidly and soon enjoy a number of organizing victories. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmedovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.